0: Welcome to the Rusty George Podcast, where each month we'll be tackling issues from the Bible to culture, community, and of course, sports. Thank you for listening. Here we go. Uh, well, welcome to the podcast. We're so glad that you're listening to us, and we're, uh, we're so grateful to have um, on the line with us uh, Dr. Jerry Walls. And Jerry and I became friends about 15 years ago, uh, a little longer than that, 20 years ago, when I was in Kentucky and he was uh, teaching at Asbury Seminary right down the road from our church, and we hit it off because of basketball, but uh, we we both love to argue about uh, hoops and. But we also share a lot of the same views. Well, view with-
1: got some misguided ideas about hoops. That's
0: I'm <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a Laker fan, and you're anybody but the Lakers. So, um, but anyway, uh, Jerry has uh, just an incredible resume of not just academia, but also uh, the books that you've written, and have been very, very helpful. So, Jerry, tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll get into some of the questions.
1: Well, I'm a philosopher, professor, scholar-in-residence at Houston Baptist University, located, obviously enough, in, uh, in Houston, Texas. I've been here several years. Um, I did my PhD at the University of Notre Dame, um, wrote my dissertation on Hell. So, I've written a lot of books about the afterlife, heaven, hell, you know, purgatory, things like that. Uh, I also write about Christian apologetics, uh, the foundations of morality, and um, I have a book that is just coming out in about two weeks. It's a critique of Roman Catholicism that I co authored uh, with a friend of mine. It's called Roman, but not Catholic. Um, I have a book coming out. Uh, shortly uh, it's called Venus Venus and Virtue celebrating sex and seeking sanctification Hmm. that deals with uh, sexual issues in the church today Um, and a book coming out next year called two dozen or so arguments for God which I co-edited with Trent Doherty of Baylor forthcoming projects and of course I write about Calvinism which is why I'm here today
0: (laughs) okay so let me just throw the softball question out to you and then we'll just dive into this Jerry, does God love everybody, and doesn't everybody in the church believe that?
1: Well, Rusty, you would think everybody in the church would believe it. I mean, it's one of the most beautiful truths that uh, evangelists like to proclaim, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And as people typically understand that, when evangelists share that good news, they're sharing it to everybody within Earside, everybody that can hear it. The assumption is that Jesus died on the cross for every single person, and that God truly desires everybody to be saved. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, uh, as the New Testament tells us. Uh, you know, he, He's not uh, a God who's content with the 99 sheep in the fold. Mm-hmm. He also wants to go out after that, that one lone lost sheep because he, he uh, rejoices uh, in the salvation of sinners. In fact, what we're, we're told in that passage that, that there's rejoicing in heaven over a single sinner that repents. So this is a God who loves to save people, whose very nature is love, whose very nature is loving relationships. Yes, you would think everybody would believe this, but Mm -hmm. remarkably enough, uh, there's a very vocal, influential strain of theology that has denied that God loves everybody, at least in any meaningful sense of the word love. I'm talking, of course, about Calvinism. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay, so let me just stop you right there. Sure. Can you define for us Calvinism, where it comes from, what it looks like today, and then, uh, you know, Ar- Arminianism and how all that plays in and kind of the difference between the two?
1: Well, that's a pretty big question, but let me start with defining Calvinism, and, and feel free to interrupt me at any point if, uh, if I need to clarify. So right. Calvinism, um, properly ca- so-called, uh, takes its name from John Calvin, the great 16th century Protestant reformer, who was a great theologian and someone I greatly admire uh, overall. Uh, but he, he made famous a theology that really goes back, first of all, to St. Augustine. So, so strictly speaking, it'd probably more accurate to call it Augustinianism, uh, mm. the, uh, the 5th century, 4th, 5th century theologian. Um, but Calvin is the one who made it famous, so it's, it's called the name of Calvinism. And this, this uh, theology has been held by a number of very influential theologians in the Western Church, both Roman Catholic and Protestant. So some people think this is just a Protestant evangelical debate. As a matter of fact, uh, the Roman Catholic Church has its own Calvinists, uh, stemming from the August, from Augustine, who also affirm this idea. But to sum it up, uh, most famously, Calvinism can be defined, at least in terms of its, its theology of salvation, in the so-called TULIP. The T stands for total depravity, which is the idea that all persons... Are, are, are depraved. All persons are are disabled by sin. All persons are dead in their trespasses and sins. So all persons are affected throughout the total person by sin. So total depravity. All right. The U stands for unconditional election. Now this is where Calvinism really begins to get interesting because the T, the total depravity, is held by lots of Christians who are not Calvinists. So that's not you know a, a, a Calvinist distinctive per right. se. But the U stands for unconditional election, and this is the idea that God chooses to save only some people out of the fallen you know, mass of humanity, but to pass over the rest, and, and many traditional theologians think the rest includes the overwhelming majority of people, but the saved are a tiny remnant. So God chooses out of the mass of fallen dead humanity to save a certain small portion He passes over the rest, and the idea that it's unconditional is God does not choose to save some people on the basis of the fact that they have faith, or they persevere in discipleship, or they obey Him or love Him. It's the opposite. Uh, If He chooses them, they will have faith. If He chooses them, they will persevere. If He chooses them, they will worship and obey Him. But if He does not choose them, they cannot possibly... Uh, have faith. They cannot possibly obey. They cannot possibly persevere. So God unconditionally simply chooses out of the mass of sinners, all of whom are equally sinful and guilty, to save some and not others. Now the L is where it gets really shocking, and this is where, again, Calvinism flies so much in the face of the gospel as it is preached by most people and understood by most people. The L stands for limited atonement. This is the idea that Christ only died for those that God unconditionally elected to save. So Christ did not die for everybody, or at mm-hmm. least he did not die for everybody in the same sense. Mm-hmm. So when you read passages like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Calvin would say, well, that doesn't mean every single person. You know, and in, in 1 John uh, 2, 2, it says Christ died not only for our sins, but the whole world. It sounds like that clearly means everybody. But Calvin would say, no, no, that doesn't mean everybody. It means something like uh, People from all over the world, but not every single person. So there is not good news for everybody. So, so a Calvinist you know, who, who, who believes this cannot honestly, when he preaches the gospel, he cannot honestly say, Jesus died for all of you. God loves you. God desires your salvation. Because for all he knows, the persons to whom he is preaching are not among the unconditionally elect. They may be persons for whom Christ did not die. And so they may be unfortunate persons that God has chosen to pass over, and they will consequently be damned forever, eternally miserable, and they are simply incapable of accepting the gospel. Pretty pretty stiff stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like I say, you don't hear this very often overtly preached. Calvinists are often very subtle in the way they preach this, and they will say, whosoever will may come, which sounds like everybody can come. So the Calvinists can honestly say, whosoever will may come. If you... Come, you know, you're invited to come. But, of course, here's the point. If you are not one of the unconditionally elect for whom Christ died, you can't come. You you won't want to come. Resist the gospel inevitably. All right, so that's the T-U-L of the tulip. The I stands for irresistible grace. And this is the point that James Arminius, uh, after whom Arminianism is named, and this is the theology that's at odds with Calvinism, Uh, This is the point that that Arminius Ed really distinguishes between his theology and that of Calvin, namely whether grace is resistible or not. Now, there's lots of passages in the New Testament and the Bible at large that would seem to suggest that we're perfectly capable of resisting the grace of God. You know, in fact, the Bible tells us don't resist the Holy Spirit. It talks about people Mm -hmm. resisting resisting, uh, the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So here's the point. The Calvinist says, if you are one of the chosen, the unconditionally elect for whom Christ died, God will move upon you in such a way that you will not be able to resist his grace. Now, you won't want to resist it because he will change your desires. He will change your, your thoughts, your your your, your desires, your, your, your values, your will, in such a way that you will want to come. So, uh, he, he, he gives you this grace, and those uh, who are given it cannot resist it, but they don't want to resist it because he will make them want to come. Those who are not given the irresistible grace can't come. Those who are given irresistible grace cannot but come. Mm. Clear so far? Absolutely. All right. Now, finally, the P stands for perseverance of the saints. And this is the doctrine that those that are truly elect will persevere. They will maintain faith until the end of their lives and be finally saved. So uh, the Calvinist tradition, like every other tradition, has to deal with the, the puzzling phenomenon of the so-called backslider, the person who initially believes, the, the person who seems to, to have genuine faith, who's on fire, you know, maybe a zealous you know, person out witnessing to their friends and all this kind of stuff. But then maybe they sort of uh, lose their enthusiasm. They fall away, uh, lose their faith seemingly. So here's what the Calvinists would say well, if this person is truly elect, if they're one of the unconditional elect, they will certainly come back to God. But if they don't, they were never really saved in the first place. It was not a genuine conversion. So everyone who is truly elect will persevere to the end, ultimately. Those who do not persevere were never elect in the first place, were never truly converted. Now, uh, this doctrine, uh, and all of these doctrines, really posed enormous pastoral problems and have in the history of the church, um, particularly uh, this doctrine, the perseverance of the saints, um, because Calvin also had this doctrine of, of the what he called the false hope, that God sometimes gives to people what seems to be saving grace, and again, this is, this is Calvin's explanation of the backslider, but they're not really elect, but he gives them what appears to be saving grace, and they persevere for a while and show the fruits of the Christian life for a while. They believe, they go to church, they read the Bible, they pray, they they do all the stuff that Christians normally do, but then they fall away. Well, yeah. again, uh, they had the, the, the they were not really chosen, and that's why they had only the false hope. And uh, and uh, in the history of the church, uh, lots of times in, in in Calvinist circles and churches, people were tormented by the fear: Am I a victim of a false hope? You know, sometimes my spirit is cold. Sometimes I don't feel like praying. Sometimes I don't feel like witnessing. Sometimes I don't want to get out of bed and go, you know, go to church, all all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, You know, so, so maybe I'm one of the ones that is a victim of a false hope. And in fact, Jonathan Edwards, the great, uh, the great frontier uh, preacher, uh, New England preacher, I should have said, um, and one of the greatest theologians America's ever, ever produced, uh, was a Calvinist. And he said most of the people, and that he was an 18th century figure, most of the people uh, in his churches were often, often uh, stressed and, and worried for fear that they were victims of the false hope. So this was a, was a big problem. And, yeah. and pastorally speaking, it poses enormous problems. We can talk about that more if you want to, but uh, uh, that's, that's one of the places pastorally speaking where the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism really comes sharply into focus.
2: Yeah, definitely. Uh you don't hear people very often identifying like every so often you you hear somebody say oh yeah i'm a calvinist but you don't often hear people say oh yeah i'm arminian um i i feel like we're starting to get kind of out of this era where calvinism is kind of becoming a fad or something like with mark driscoll or john piper it's like cool to listen to them or whatever um but is arminianism is that a label that you claim, Jerry? And um,
1: absolutely, yeah. I would oh, Okay. Call myself an Armenian. Uh, I, I, you know, would also call myself a Wesleyan. So Wesley was right, probably mm-hmm. the most famous figure in the Armenian tradition. So I would call myself, yeah, a Wesleyan Armenian or something like that.
0: Okay. So, Jerry, talk a little bit about. All right, I, I, let, I'm a casual churchgoer, or I attend church. Uh, you know, maybe even every Sunday. But I don't know who John Calvin is. And I don't know any of these terms you just mentioned. But what are the terms that I would be used to that, you know, behind the curtain are really Calvinism?
1: Uh, Good question. I I mean, when you hear someone talking about a theology of grace or free grace or sovereign love or something like that, uh, those are often code terms that will that will give you an indication that the person is a Calvinist. Now, here's the important thing to understand: mm-hmm. sovereignty is not a Calvinist distinctive. Uh, all mm-hmm. Orthodox Christians believe in the sovereignty of God. I very much enthusiastically affirm that God is sovereign. Uh, I very much and strongly believe that salvation is by grace through faith. I, I strongly, as did Wesley and Arminius, as as did Wesley and Arminius you know, strongly affirm that, that we are saved by grace, that it is not by works. We're not, we're not Pelagians, which was, uh, which is the idea that, um, you know, we have to halfway save ourselves or something, something like that, 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 that our cooperation is the most important part of, of salvation. No, grace is what saves us. So, so... Uh, even if you don't hear the term Calvinism, you know, when you hear some kind of phrases like that, that it might might at least be a tip-off that you're dealing uh, with someone from a Calvinist a Calvinist tradition. And again, mm-hmm. most Calvinists are not so overt in, in saying that God doesn't love everybody. Now, some do, but most are not. And most Calvinists, if you hear them preach, you would get the impression that they think God loves everybody, that Jesus died for everybody. I mean, you hear someone like John Piper, who's... You know, sort of the uh, the contemporary guru of the contemporary Calvinist movement. Right. I mean, you know, he likes to talk about God's heart of compassion going out to all persons and all this sort of thing, and everybody being invited, and 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 we should we should uh, passionately witness to every person. Charles Spurgeon, mm-hmm. famous 19th century preacher. You know, same way. I mean, uh, you know, he he's got a famous passage in which he says. You know, if people go to hell, we should that they should at least go to hell with us, our arms wrapped around, you know, their legs, trying to prevent them, you know, from from, from stampeding mm. into hell. Now, again, what what this seems to imply is that God really loves all of these people, wants to save all of them. But here's the fact: if these persons are not elect, doesn't matter how much we witness to them. If That's they're nice. not, if if they're not persons for whom Christ died, if they're not, um, you know, uh, those that God has chosen to give irresistible grace they can't come they won't want to come they can't be saved and yet uh, if you listen to someone like Spurgeon Piper some of these great Calvinist preachers you'd get the impression that they really believe Christ died for everybody and God loves everybody but that simply uh, cannot coherently be advanced given their theology
0: mm-hmm. so what do we do with passages like that use the predestination word um, you know like those he chose he also predestined and and you know Romans 9 and, and Ephesians one, I believe that talk in those terms. I mean, at face value, you look at that and go, huh, well, that that must be Calvinism, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, well, well, again, I go back to the idea that 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 sovereignty is not a Calvinist distinctive, nor is predestination. I strongly believe in predestination, but I believe in conditional predestination. So here's how I would put it. Everybody who is in Christ, is predestined for the ultimate end of salvation, eternal salvation mm. in heaven. So you can think of it as like a train. Uh, a train uh, has a, a predetermined destination. You hop on a train, I don't know, let's say in Houston, and uh, maybe, the, the, uh, maybe the destination is Dallas. I don't even know if there's a train like that, but let's just say there is. And so uh, anyone who buys the ticket, anyone who gets on the train, that's where the train is headed. Now, you can get off the train, you know, uh, at various stops along the way, but anyone who remains on that train is predestined. That's the destination that is chosen for this train to go. So all of those who are in Christ, who remain in Christ, so long as you remain in Christ, that's the destination to which he is taking you. Now, I spell all this out uh, in in my little book, Uh, Does God Love Everyone? The Heart of What is Wrong with Calvinism. Now, if you would like to see some more extensive discussion of these texts, um, uh, I have a, a video series called "What's Wrong with Calvinism" that I did with uh, one of my colleagues here at Houston Baptist University, who's a young New Testament scholar, Paul Sloan, And uh, it's a six-part series, and in parts four, five, and six, we examine those texts in much more detail. So if you wanna if you wanna look at a uh, uh, an Arminian take on Romans 9, Romans 8 and 9, Ephesians, some of these other texts that Calvinists often cite, uh, I would refer you to those to those uh, videotapes.
2: Yeah. One of the main themes, Jerry, like of uh, your book, especially to does God love everybody seems to be God's role in intervening in the life of the Christian or the potential Christian, uh, especially within notions of like you mentioned, irresistible grace and how to describe sovereignty or power. Um, why is Calvinist interpretations of these problematic? And what's a more constructive description um, that stems more from a relationally grounded perspective of God and God's love?
1: Right. Well, the, the bottom line is, is just this. Um, the Calvinist account simply uh, does, not, does not give us a satisfactory explanation uh, or account of how God truly loves all persons. <clears throat> all right. So here's the thing. A lot of people want to cast the debate simply in terms of power. Now, mm-hmm. if, if you're talking about power, well, of course, no one can resist God's power. But love can be resisted. That's the amazing thing. So, mm-hmm. so, so God approaches us as a lover. Um, he stands at the door and knocks. You know. So, so you have that remarkable passage in in, in Revelation three, uh, where Christ is standing at the door knocking, and here are these people who have who have uh, who have been given the 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 option. Of opening the door, letting Christ in, or refusing to do so. Now they don't realize their blindness. Uh, they don't realize their condition. They think they're rich, you know. They, they think they've got everything, but as a matter of fact, they're not. And here they have the opportunity of having infinite riches, of having the Lord of the universe come in and sup with them and and be in fellowship with them. Okay, we have the remarkable ability to refuse love. So it's not a it's not a contest of power. If it was a matter of power, you know, it would be irresistible. But grace, love, it can be resisted. The very nature of love by definition is such that mm-hmm. coming from finite contingent persons, it has to be freely given. Love by definition cannot be coerced. It cannot be yeah. determined, It cannot be forced. It cannot be programmed. It cannot be manipulated. It can be elicited. It can be invited. And God comes to us with the greatest of invitations. He comes to us with the greatest uh, uh, solicitation. He wants us to love him back. He he offers to come into our hearts. You know, you, you have the same thing in John 14. Anyone that obeys me uh, and loves me, I will come in and and live with them. And again, the extraordinary implication of that text in John 14 is we may choose not to love and obey the Lord of the universe. That's the extraordinary reality uh, 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 of human freedom, which is that we can choose not to choose the end for which we were created. We were created for love. We were created for relationship. But we may choose not to embrace the love and relationship for which God created us. That's the amazing thing.
0: Okay, Jerry, let me ask you this question. From a practical standpoint, if I have a family member whom I love deeply, but they are not interested in the things of God at all, uh, there's no inkling of questions or interest or no church on Christmas or Easter or anything like that, how do I pray for them from the perspective of not being a Calvinist? I mean, it's, it's not a, God, will you turn their hearts toward you? Because what I hear you saying is God won't do that. How would you pray for that person?
1: Uh, I would pray for that person that, that their eyes would be opened, that their hearts would be softened, that they would come to see the truth of the gospel. I mean, Jesus, you know, prays over Jerusalem, weeps over Jerusalem, says, how often, you know, would I have gathered you under my wings as a mother chicken with the chicks, but you would not. Mm-hmm. So, so pray that these people will, will, will have their eyes opened, that their hearts will be softened, uh, that, that, that the truth of the gospel will become apparent to them. So, so uh, we're not asking God to determine this because if that were the case, then again, you would, you would assume that everybody would be determined. It's right. right. We, we don't need to pray, pray, pray in the first place. place. Yeah, exactly. 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 So uh, when we pray, I think we are participating in the love of God. We are uh, extending uh, the love of God to people through our prayers. We are, we are, we are sharing with God as he reaches out to them. And the mystery of, of how our prayers affect people, you know, is obviously why not, not easily explained. But I do believe that when we pray according to the will of God, we are sharing in his heart of love, his heart of compassion, his reaching out to those persons. So, yeah, I, I mean, uh, we, we don't understand it. It is mysterious. But uh, we, we pray that uh, people's, people's eyes will be opened, their hearts will be opened, uh that they will, they will come to see the truth that uh, that will set them free.
2: Yeah, that's good. So, uh, I don't want this to be a Calvinist bash, so um, I'm interested to know, Jerry, what is something that Arminians or other open and relational perspectives on God um, can actually learn from Calvinism in your perspective that you think we could do better?
1: Yeah, well, I, I often say... Uh, it's unfortunate that because sovereignty and predestination and election have become so much emphasized by Calvinists that sure. those are Calvinist distinctives. Yeah, so I would say uh, what, what all of us should learn to do is to take those doctrines much more seriously. We need much more preaching and teaching about sovereignty from an Arminian perspective, mm-hmm. from predestination from an Arminian perspective, uh, from election from a predestin you know, for, for, from an Armenian perspective conditional election uh, mm-hmm. of the like predestination in Christ uh, that's what needs to be expanded by the way the uh, the the most thorough well I should say longest detailed commentary on Romans 9 is actually now by an Armenian um it's a three-volume, it's a three-volume uh, commentary by a guy by the name of Brian Abaschiano. <laughs> okay. Uh, some, some people think that Romans 9 is a Calvinist text. Actually, it's a great Arminian text, especially when yeah. you use Romans 9 in light of Romans 9 through 11. Huh. The point is the expansion of mercy, uh, not not the contracting or the constricting of mercy. Wow. Like, to, to, your, to your previous connection, you know, uh, you know where, pa- where Paul preaches the gospel, says, you know, be reconciled to God, uh, repent. I mean, that's, that's, what we, that's what we pray for, that's what we yearn for, that's what we hope for, that's what we invite. But again, uh, it is an invitation of love, it is a solicitation of love, it is not a manipulation uh, or an attempt to determine or compel.
0: That's fascinating. Okay, uh, three volumes on one chapter. That's, <laughs> three
1: volumes on Romans 9, yeah. Romans
0: <laughs> nine. That's, that's intense. Um, that's intense, yeah,
1: man, that's serious.
0: That is, that is. Okay, well, Jerry, this is uh, this has been fascinating. Uh, what do you make of this argument? I heard a guy say this one time. I thought it was pretty good. He said, how can um, Calvinism, and I'll use that term uh, to, to sum it all up, be an accurate response or an idea i should say if the rich young ruler was able to say no to jesus and walk away
1: yeah well the calvinists would simply say he was not one of the unconditionally elect he was not one of the he was not one of those for whom christ died now well, so again uh, calvinists distinguished between what they called the general call and the special call okay the general call of the gospel goes out to all persons which is why again the Calvinists can honestly say, whosoever will may come. Everybody's invited. But if you are not one of the chosen, you are, not, you are not one of the specially called. The specially called are those who are given the irresistible grace that moves people, that opens their eyes, that causes them uh, to want to come to Christ. Mm-hmm. They get the a call and the special call. So he would be somebody who was given the general call, Um, but uh, his rejection of the gospel would be evidence of the fact that he was not one of those that was unconditionally elect.
0: Okay. All right, let me uh, shift gears just a little bit here, Um, and I'll put you on the spot because I didn't tell you we were going to ask you this, but for somebody sitting out there thinking, this is so fascinating, I would like to learn more not just about this but about all things theology. What are some great resources out there for people that, you know, are beyond the scope of the, uh, you know, Max Lucado, Rusty George books, uh, not to put myself in the same sentence as Max, but, but you know, that might uh, uh, really expand somebody's thinking on some of their theology.
1: Well, w- with respect to these particular issues, I've already mentioned the little book I wrote, Does God Love Everyone? The Heart of What's Wrong with Calvinism. That's a great place to start. Uh, Joe Donjew and I did a book several years ago called uh, Why I'm Not a Calvinist. Um, another author that is really good, uh, that has written a lot about this, is Roger Olson. Yeah, who has a book called against Calvinism, I believe is the title of it And he also has a book on what is Arminian theology and plus a number of others But Roger Mm -hmm. Olson is a terrific resource for someone who wants to do serious reading Uh, If you want uh, some commentators, Ben Witherington, uh, noted Arminian commentator uh, uh, Let's see, M.T. Wright's new commentary on Romans is also great I've mentioned Brian Abbasciano uh, Craig Keener, uh, another phenomenally prolific uh, commentator who's, who's done, done this massive work on the New Testament. He also writes from an Arminian perspective. Joel Green, hmm. uh, who's up there in California at Fuller Seminary. Um, these are just a few of the names in terms of biblical and theological resources. If you want a, like a systematic theology from an Arminian perspective, a good place to look would be uh, Thomas, Oden. Thomas Oden. If you want to know more about Wesley's theology... I would strongly recommend the work of Kenneth Collins, okay. who is a Wesley expert and scholar. Um, if you want to read more about Arminius? Read Arminius himself. Um, uh, his works are in three three volumes. Um, so he would be another person, to, obviously, to look at. And the sermons of John Wesley—I mean, you can't do much better than those.
0: Okay. That's that's true. Okay, last question for you, and we'll talk about your favorite subject besides this basketball. <laughs> you and I have uh, differing opinions on who the greatest basketball player of is of all time. Tell me why you think it's LeBron James. Three reasons. Go. <laughs>
1: Three reasons. All right. LeBron James uh, is already, um, I think, in the top ten list of all-time NBA scorers. And he's not just a scorer. He is an all-around basketball player, phenomenal uh, assist man, rebound man. He, he's got phenomenal statistics on, on all of the above. Uh, the second reason, and this is the one that I think is absolutely phenomenal, LeBron James, and and I know he left Cleveland in the first place because of um, you know the fact that He was uh, on a team that had no chance of winning. Uh, He took a team that had nothing to the finals. I mean, that in itself is a remarkable feat. But then he came back to a a city uh, that is a small market team, back to the, you know, the Rust Belt, back to the suffering, -suffering (coughs) long-suffering city of Cleveland who hadn't won a championship of any kind for decades and brought them a championship. Now that is the sort of stuff of superheroes. The heart of LeBron James and coming back you know, to win a championship. Everyone who's got any kind of a heart for basketball should love this man. LeBron <laughs> is man. It's not even debatable. It's not even debatable. I mean Michael Jordan was talented. Was oh. LeBron has got a warm heart. I mean I mean LeBron loves the people. I mean he, he is he is a man of the people who who brought uh, you know, uh, a long-suffering city, a great chance to celebrate. And for that, i love the guy forever. I mean, I've heard rumors about him coming to L.A. I hope to God that doesn't happen.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, now hold, hold on, hold on. Hold on. First of all, I think Michael Jordan is better than LeBron because he won with much less talent.
1: Oh, that is absolute baloney. <laughs> that is absolute baloney. I mean, if, if you look at the ranking of the team,
0: all, all he had was Pippen.
1: All he had was Pippen. I mean, yeah, one of the top 50 greatest players of all time.
0: Okay, but LeBron has had Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh, Kyrie Irving. Then they had to go get Kevin Love to and help him out. The then they brought time. in a variety of number one picks.
1: At the same time. Look, everybody that's won a championship has, has had has had excellent players. Okay, <laughs> when LeBron took the Cleveland Cavaliers to the finals, tell me who the second best player on the team was.
0: Okay, now I, this is what
1: I. When LeBron first took the Cavaliers to the finals, you can't even think of it because there's nobody that you <laughs> him. I, mean, I mean, look, I mean, it was with, a dude named Booby. With, whoa, whoa, whoa. When they won the championship last year, okay, one of the guys starting for them was J.R. Smith. Yes, he a starter for the New York Knicks. He for the Knicks. I mean, I mean, I mean, he had been cast off several times. You know, just one of these expendable players in multiplayer deals and passed around. And Cleveland took him as a starter and won a championship with him. That's what LeBron can do. Come
0: on. You know man. what? I think I could average what Smith did if I had that on a, a talent around me. Because they're all double-teaming LeBron and Kyrie and Kevin Love. A
1: great teammate like LeBron who can set you up with his desire to pass. and that you up?
0: He gets triple-teamed.
1: He's going to probably even make you shine, Rusty. You?
2: <laughs> hey, I don't know about rings, but Penny Hardaway had the best commercials. So <laughs> –
1: I don't know. i you
0: that he did, Jerry. You know I love you. Thank you so much for this. It's been so helpful. And I would just say I've read both books uh, about Calvinism: "Why I'm Not a Calvinist" and "Does God Love Everybody." And I'm just so grateful that for what you did with "Does God Love Everybody,"
1: uh,
0: you, you, you really you took it down a notch so that all of us can understand it. And I even had my 15 year old read it and she read it in about two or three settings. She loved it and has shared it with other people as well. Wow,
1: that's marvelous.
0: Yeah, and I I think that really speaks to um, a a gift that you have to not just be able to live up in the stratosphere, but to come down with us commoners as well and talk things uh, such as sports and theology in a way we all understand it. And even though even though you're misguided when it comes to LeBron and the Lakers, if he comes here, I'm going to have an easier chance cheering for him than you will for the Lakers. But
1: if he, if he comes, if he comes to the Lakers, Rusty, you'll have to have me out to your church some weekend. I'll, I'll do a, a seminar on whatever you want, and we'll go see Lakers <laughs> play, and I'll grit my teeth and you know try to ignore the fact that he's got a Lakers uniform.
0: <laughs> you would cheer for LeBron, but hope the Lakers lose. I know it. I don't know. I, I, it, it, it's like you, I, I could cheer for them, like <laughs> to cheer for UCLA because we've Yes, of course, okay. I know. All right, buddy, I sure appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks, Thanks so much for listening today. If you have a moment, we'd love for you to go to iTunes and write a review and share this with your friends on social media and just by word of mouth. Great to have you here. We'll see you next month.